you got to figure out when John's being figurative and when John's being literal. And then you've got to figure out, is John talking about something that's happening in chronological order? Or is John just having a vision of something that's going to happen at one point? And then you've got to figure out, once you've figured all of that out, how does this matter to me right now? What does God want me to do? What does God want me to know? What difference is this passage of Revelation going to make in my life? Because by the way, there is no part of your Bible, be it prophetic or otherwise, there is no part of your Bible that has exhausted its usefulness. Okay? So, even a prophetic book that is prophesying something that has already occurred. And there's plenty of that in the Old Testament. Okay? A, pro- a prophet in the Old Testament says, God has decreed this, this is going to happen. And a hundred years after that book was written, it happened. Does that mean that that prophetic book has no meaning and no value to us today? Absolutely not. Uh, At the very least, we can see that an unchanging God reacts certain ways to certain things and that God is always good for His Word. That's application enough for a bunch of sermons right there. But there's no part of your Bible that exhausts its usefulness. It's always got an application. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, which is what we're going to be in today... Uh, is very clearly symbolic. It's not literal, most of it. But I don't chronologically know where it falls. And I'm comfortable saying that because none of the guys with PhDs in my library knew where it fell either. That does not mean I can't preach it. Say, Pastor, how in the world are you going to stand up there and admit you don't know something about the Bible and then preach it? Y'all, if pastors, if only pastors preached that exhaustively knew the Bible, there would be none of us. Okay? There are hard parts in this. But I don't need to know chronologically where this falls to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what it's saying. And that's what I'm going to preach this morning. And I am going to title this sermon, you can see on your handout, Judgment and Completion. Judgment and Completion. So if you'll stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Father, I pray that you would bless us with understanding and that you would bless us with a sober look at time and its limited nature. Uh, That there is such a thing as time reaching its maturity, its completeness. And we have a biblical guarantee that when that moment arrives, you will not delay. 
to execute your judgment of bringing the wheat into the barn and throwing the grapes into the trough. We love you, Lord, and I ask you to to bring time to bear on us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, main idea that I want us to, to comprehend today by the time we leave is that eventually both righteousness and wickedness reach their completion. Um, I have been, these cotton fields that are out here right now have been giving me anxiety. Um, I'm not a farmer. Um, my family owns farmland and we rent it to people who know what they're doing. Uh, so I don't do much of that myself, but I have great respect for for the people who do. Um, I've always, uh, I've even said to Emily before, I'm like, you know, I've I romanticize farming in my, in my mind, I think. I think of it as like this idyllic relationship with the land and, you know, ranching or something like that. I told Emily one time, I said, I want some goats. And she said, what would you do with them? I said, have goats. I, I don't know. She, she's like, well, you, you don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to take care of them. You don't know how to grow things. You don't know how to... I was like, no, I don't, but I just... Part of me wants to do this because I, 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 I've been around it my whole life, but I've never been involved in it. But I drive past these cotton fields and I know enough to know that once you put a crop in the ground, you're working on a time frame. That it's, you've got this period of time that if, you're, if it's going to grow, it's going to grow in this period of time. So you've got to get it in the dirt at the right time and then the weather's going to change at some point. And it doesn't matter what plant you put in the ground, a weather change is going to kill it. Sometimes it gets too hot, sometimes it gets too cold, sometimes it gets too wet, sometimes it gets too dry. So certain plants have certain seasons. And I'm starting to watch this thermometer go down, and I'm driving by and seeing this cotton in these fields, and I'm starting to get anxiety because I don't know enough about cotton to know when it's not safe for it to still be out there. But I do know enough to know that when I start seeing that, that white, fluffy, going to be clothing one day, it's getting close to the time when I'm about to see the combines go out there and start pulling that stuff up and, and baling it. And, you know, I drive to the grocery store and I see the big bales and they're wrapping and just kind of exhale because I'm like, <laughs> they got it in. The, the crop is good. Uh, God uses a very scriptural... When I say scriptural, I mean he does it throughout the Bible. Metaphor of harvest time in this particular passage of Revelation. And he does it to describe eventually the ending of the righteous and the wicked in Revelation. Because we've just read a passage immediately prior to this that has to do with uh, the, the faithful to God refusing to take the mark. And those who turn their back on him finally taking the mark in a matter of, in, in an action of final rebellion. So, what is going to happen? The angel immediately prior to this, um, uh, uh, rather the voice from heaven says in verse 13, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. That's verse 13 in chapter 14. That God says eventually the righteous, the the, the those who die in the Lord who are going to die blessed from now on, that they'll, they'll be gathered into the barn. But those who take the mark will be thrown into the, the stomping trough. And we're going, to, we're going to outline both of those images 
later. So I want us to see just two points today because the text divides itself into two halves. And there is a typo on my handout. Uh, Copy-paste is not always your friend. Um, I will correct that when we get to it. You'll notice point two is the same as point one. It's not actually. I'll correct that when you get there. Um, So point number one, I want us to see that God's going to bring his wheat into the barn at the appropriate time. Look at verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like a son of man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the most important question in this initial passage is, who is this one like the Son of Man? The Son of Man was actually Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels. Uh, It's taken almost directly from Daniel chapter 7. This is not on your handout, but in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, you can read uh, Daniel saying, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's exactly the image you get of this Son of Man here in Revelation 14. And Daniel goes on to say, He came to the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now that's very clearly Jesus in Daniel 7. That all of the imagery that Scripture uses of Jesus, you see in Daniel chapter 7 right here. That Philippians 2 tells me that all people's nations and languages should serve Jesus. That He's been given the name that's above every name. That that He has been exalted uh, above every other name. That He is... He is His Father's Son. He wears the crown of rulership. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. That this one, in verses 14 through 16, who is one like a son of man uh, coming on the clouds, uh, or sitting on a cloud, this is very clearly Jesus. Uh, And when you think of uh, clouds, you know, please don't think like little baby cherubim, Valentine's Day, kind of sweet, genteel, sheep-like, fluffy clouds. This is a picture of power. Okay? Don't don't lower this manifestation of Jesus this way. That sitting on a cloud here is a picture of, of power, that He rules the heavens. He is in charge. This is very clearly a divine figure, that angels don't get described like this. In Revelation, I, I go to great lengths to say this because you can go out and you can go read a commentary or you might listen to some other preacher say this. There's actually a school of thought out there that thinks that this is just a, a very special angel. That they don't think this is Jesus because they say, well, an angel tells this guy what to do. Angels don't tell Jesus what to do. Jesus tells angels what to do. But if you read this very clearly, the angel doesn't tell him what to do. The angel just says, hey, your dad says it's time. Because where does the angel come out of? He comes out of the temple. Who lives in the temple? God does. This is the temple in heaven. This is the father through an angel giving the son the go ahead. All right, son, it's time. It's time. And so King Jesus takes his sickle and does what's called reap the earth. Now, where is this imagery coming from? Because we very clearly get the son of man from Daniel 7, but 
This is a very strong image. And I would be thinking if John is pulling imagery from Old Testament prophetic books, because all of the Bible's tied together, is there somewhere else this imagery is used? Yes, Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 says almost this exact thing. Joel 3, 12 and 13 says, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So this gives us a hint. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down. For the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That almost all of this imagery is taken from Joel chapter 3, which is a prophetic chapter that has to do with judgment. It is God entering into judgment with humanity. You've got a sickle reaping and you've got grapes being trod in Joel and in Revelation 14. So I've got to interpret Revelation 14 based on what John is obviously referencing here. God vindicates and delivers His people in Joel 3, and God utterly destroys those who have harmed Him. I've got two harvests that I'm looking at in Revelation 14, and I think that's what they are. The first harvest is God's vindication of His people, and the second harvest is God's destruction of those who have harmed them. So I want us to look at the first harvest. First harvest, you've got Jesus with His sickle reaping the earth. Now that sounds violent, <laughs> honestly. Uh, you don't think of a sickle or a, or, or a heavenly combine being gentle. But I don't think we've got anything to worry about here if you're Christians. Because John chapter 4 verse 36, this is, again, this is not on your handout. I just want to show why I think this is the righteous. John chapter 4 verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, Do you not still say, There is still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In this first statement that Jesus makes in John 4, the wheat in the fields is this subset of humanity who's ready to believe the gospel. That Jesus is preaching during His earthly ministry and there are beginning to be people who believe in Him. There are beginning to be people who recognize this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the Anointed One, the One that we've been waiting on. I see Him, I hear Him, I'm ready to follow Him, I'm beginning to believe in Him. And Jesus says to His disciples, I want you to look. Look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. There's already some wheat out there that is ready to come into the barn. And you need to pray that God is going to send folks out there to bring this harvest in. One reason that I want to see this church grow, okay? I don't want to see this church grow just because it gives me the warm fuzzies to stand behind the pulpit and see folks sitting in these seats, one reason that I want this church to grow is because of John 4, 35 and 36. If we got more saved people who are members of this church, those are more people who can take the gospel to other people. We can do more work if we have more laborers. Okay? This is also why if you're already a member of, the, of, of, of Jesus' wheat farm, if you're already a, on, on the roll... If you're already on the, I, I don't want to say payroll, that's not what I'm talking about, but, but if you're already a, a contracted laborer, 
Then please, good Lord, get out there in the field with your sickle and start reaping. I used to work in a hardware store and it would drive us nuts uh, because we would have some guys that would come in. They usually never lasted long. They came in and they worked for three or four months. And you could identify them quickly because we have the little... How many of y'all work retail? Anybody work retail? The door opens and the bell dings and you know somebody's come in the store. Now, the, the way it's supposed to work, if there's nobody in the store, if it's 3 o'clock on a Thursday in the summer and there's nobody doing anything, then all of us are behind the counter doing this. And then the bell dings. What does a good employee do? Where are they? What do the, what do the bad employees do? You got that? Okay. Let's stay there. Y'all, be that guy. Don't be this guy. If you belong to Jesus, and He's already called you, and He's already saved you, do something. Do something. Jesus says, pray for, lab- pray for the Father to send laborers out into the harvest. That's, why, that's one reason I want this church to grow. You want me to join this church so I can work? Yup. I sure do. Because that's what Jesus wants. Well, I thought Jesus wanted to save me so I could have a peaceful life and, and then die and go to heaven. Peaceful life, yes, in heaven. <laughs> That's, that's all he promised. <laughs> In fact, he promised it's going to get pretty dicey here. <laughs> so, uh, so, see, Jesus in John 4 already s- describes those that he's preaching the gospel to like wheat that is ready for harvest, it's ready to be brought in the barn. This is a positive description. Then Matthew 13, 30. In the middle of another parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. You know, the enemy comes in and he sows bad seed, but the masters sow good seed, and then it grows up together, and the workers see it, and they go, Master, did you screw this up? And he goes, No, an enemy has done this. And they say, Well, then what do you want us to do about it? So the master says in verse uh, 30 of Matthew 13, Let both grow together until the what? Harvest. And at the time of what? Harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. That Jesus looks at his saints kind of like wheat. It's valuable, but it's got time that it has to mature. Guys, have you ever asked this? What is the point of Jesus saving you? Did Jesus save you just so you could go to heaven? If that was just, if that was, now I'm not saying that's not part of it. But if the only point of Jesus saving you was for you to go to heaven, why are you here? If, if, if Jesus just wanted you in heaven, then the minute you got saved, you'd be gone. But there are those of you here today who have a testimony of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and you're still sitting in a pew in Stapleton Baptist Church. There is such a thing as wheat reaching maturity. Now, maturity, I'm not talking about a quote-unquote mature believer. 
Okay? Because then the incentive for maturing is somewhat scary. As soon as you reach maturity, blah. I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. I think maturity is the idea of completeness, of fullness. Because Jesus promises in John 14, 2 through 3, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. By the way, mansions is a bad translation. That word literally just means dwelling place. It can mean rooms. In other, way, in other words, Jesus is saying, I promise you, my Father's house is not going to run out of room. Okay? If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That Jesus values His people who trust Him and He is going to take them Himself. He is going to get His saints Himself. They are His. That is why I think when you look at these two harvests, in the second one, who does the reaping? An angel or the Son of Man? An angel does in the second one. But this first one, the wheat, the righteous, who comes to get them? Jesus does. He takes care of that personally. He values us. He values us because He planted us. We're His crop. And why did He plant us? Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Do you know, Christian, that when God planted you, He planted you with a purpose? Why did he plant me in Stapleton? I don't know. I'm not you. Yeah, amen, it is. Heard somebody say Stapleton's the best place to be. Yes, it is. We're getting the Dollar General, y'all. Come on. We keep, y'all, y'all ain't even ready. Stapleton's going to take over the world. <laughs> but no, listen, when God planted you, God had a plan for you. God has a purpose for you, Christian. God has things He intends you to do. Y'all, there's, some, there's nothing that God can't do without you, but there are some things God won't do without you. That God planned works ahead of time for you to walk in. If He has called you and He has saved you, He has called you and saved you with a purpose. You're not, well, I just, I need to go find myself. No, you don't. You need to go find Jesus because if you're looking for purpose, He's got it. You're not going to find it by yourself. He's got it for you. He has prepared your works beforehand for you to walk in. That is your maturity. That when is it that Jesus will allow you to go? Do you know that nobody has ever shuffled off this mortal coil ahead of time? You will leave when your work is done. Not a moment before. Because Jesus has prepared your works beforehand for you to walk in. This also, by the way, y'all, this is why it is dangerous when God gives you a task for you to say no. 
wait, you mean God might strike me dead if I don't do what He tasked me with doing? Absolutely. Well, that seems violent. That seems Old Testament. Go back and read the book of Numbers. God gave Israel the promised land, didn't He? My Old Testament people. He brought them right to the border and said, go in. This is for you. I've given it to you. You will overtake everything in there. This is your land. This is your heritage. This is my dream for you. And they go, ah, that's a good land, but there's some really tall people in there. We don't think we can do it. So we'll just pass on this. Let's get another leader and go back to Egypt. And God said, okay. All of y'all, 20 and above, you're dying in the wilderness. Your kids will have it. And they begged and pleaded and went up and strapped on their swords and strapped on their shields and wailed and wept and said, Oh God, we'll go up now. We'll go up. Moses sat back here and said, Don't do it. Don't do it. You missed your shot. And they went up and got just to a man slaughtered. Because they didn't take God's task at His timing. Now, I'm not saying He's going to strike you dead every single time you say no. Because, good Lord, if God struck me dead every time I disobeyed Him, I wouldn't be standing in front of you today. God's a good, merciful God. But I am saying be careful because it's not out of the question. Okay? Yeah. God loves you. But when, you, when, when your kids disobeyed you, you ever had your kids over at somebody else's house? And they're going absolutely buck wild crazy and they won't listen to you. What's the last threat you always make as a parent? If you don't straighten up, I'm going to put you in the car and what? Is God a father or is he not? I'm just saying. But that's not what's happening in this passage. This is Jesus looking down at his church. This is Jesus looking down at his church and saying... You finished the race. Come on back. You've accomplished what I set out for you to do. Now come home. And Jesus brings them home personally. What if another of his purposes for his church? Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you know that Jesus Christ intends you to look more like him every single day? This is why when you look out at a field, you can tell how close it is to the harvest because you can see it looking more and more and more like a mature crop. Jesus intends you to look more and more and more like him every single day. And if you're not looking more and more and more like Jesus every single day, you need to ask yourself, are you wheat or are you tear? There should be a process of maturity happening. You should see yourself walking in the good works which God laid out for you beforehand. You should see yourself speaking more like Jesus, thinking more like Jesus, acting more like Jesus sacrificing more like Jesus. You should see that because that is God's purpose for you. If you don't see any of that, ask yourself if you're part of this first harvest. Because there's some of us that get brought into the barn on an individual basis. It happens at death that Jesus says, come home, son, come home, daughter. You finished your race. You know, I told Mark, I was talking to Mark two days ago 
And I said, your daddy passed away and my great aunt just passed away. You want to know the craziest thing? He said, what's that? I said that your, your daddy and my great aunt know each other better now than we knew them when they were here. That's just what happens when you're in the presence of Jesus. Like they finished their race. They're done. He brought them into the barn. He brought them home. Our race isn't finished yet. We're not done. But you can tell whether or not somebody is weak that's going to be brought into the barn by watching them grow. Watching yourself grow, most importantly. Look in the mirror before you look at somebody else. God has individual purposes and general purposes for His children, and He will bring them all to completion. Eventually, all the wheat's going to be brought safely into the barn. That Jesus Himself will come get His children and bring them safely home. He doesn't outsource that to anybody else. We're important enough to Him that He will come get us Himself. So first, I want you to see that God will bring His wheat into the barn safely at the appropriate time. That y'all, if you're a Christian, you got so much good to look forward to. This life pales in comparison, but there's a second harvest in this passage. There's a second harvest in this passage. And I want you to see that God will put His grapes into the vat at the appropriate time. That's verses 17 through 20. Now I want you to look and see... The earth has been reaped. Jesus has brought his wheat into the barn. His church is in his possession. But then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. Again, this is, this is, this is another reason for me to think that the first sickle wielder is Christ and the second is an angel. Because look at the big description you get of Jesus. Behold, a white cloud and one sat on it like the Son of Man having a crown on his head and in his hand a sharp sickle. Then verse 17, another angel. Not much of a description there, is there? Why? Because y'all, there's not an angel in, in heaven that's as important as Jesus. Jesus gets the, the, the detailed description. Another angel doesn't. So another angel comes out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which is in the temple by the way, who had power over fire. What in the world? Is this a comic book now? We've got like the human torch in heaven having power over fire. What is this? Y'all, I, I don't know for 100% because I don't, the Bible's not about angels. Okay? I don't know the tasks that God has given particular angels, but I feel like we can figure out who this guy is. So, I, I didn't put these on your handout because we've already been through all of these passages in this series. But if you go to Revelation chapter 8 and you look at verse 5, there is an angel there who goes into the temple and takes some fire from the altar and throws it to earth in an act of judgment. I think this is that same angel. <clears throat> Which makes me go, and by the way, we see here in verse 18, in, in, in chapter 14, another angel comes out from the altar. Same place. Okay? So this angel who I think is the same angel from Revelation chapter 8 who takes fire from the altar and throws it to earth in an act of judgment makes me ask some questions about the altar. 
Because the altar is mentioned in both places. What's going on with this thing? Well, the last thing that was offered on this altar in chapter 8 was the prayers of the saints. That they smell to God like incense. We talked about how valuable our prayers are to God and that they're a sweet smell to His nostrils, that He enjoys it when we pray. It's not a task to Him to listen to His kids. But the prayers of the saints were offered on this altar, but these are specific prayers. These are not just general prayers. We're told what those prayers are in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. And these are prayers of saints who have been killed by, for their faithfulness. That they cry out to God for vengeance and say, God, how long until you avenge our blood on the earth? That the beast has killed us. That a God-hating world has killed us and we are before you today because our bodies were slain there. How long before you avenge us? And in verse 11, the saints are told to wait until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Just like wheat reaches completion and it's ready to be brought in, grapes reach ripeness and have to be pulled off the vine. And God said to these saints in Revelation 6, just wait. I see those who have mistreated my kids. I see those who have not listened when I spoke to them. I see those who have stoned my prophets. I see those who have rejected my word. I am just being patient. But one day, God's patience will end. Because patience that goes on indefinitely is not patience. It's injustice. Patience, by definition, has an end. And God says here, the grapes are finally ripe. That in chapter 14, an opportunity is given for people to make a very final decision. You can either reject the mark and die, or take the mark and die. But I promise you, I mean no pun when I say this, the second death is way worse than the first. The grapes are finally ripe because now humanity has an opportunity to make a final choice. One last opportunity to tell God, we don't care about you. And God let them make it. And as soon as they make it, it's time. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, <clears throat> this is a not very veiled reference to what is commonly referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. Anybody ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon? This is a famous word. Even if you don't know where it comes from, you've probably heard the word Armageddon. 
I don't like the phrase, the Battle of Armageddon, because it implies that there's a fight. Okay? Armageddon is not a fight. It's a beatdown. It's very one-sided. And it's one guy against every rebellious human that there is left, and the one guy wins. It's not hard to do when that one guy is Jesus. This is a very not veiled reference to the Battle of Armageddon, which takes place in a place called Megiddo, or, as we might know it in Joel 3, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Yet another reason that Joel 3 is very closely tied to this passage. And what does Joel say in Joel 3? It has to do with God's children being mistreated by the rebellious nations of the world. Exactly like Revelation 14. That God says, come on down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We'll set up here for judgment. You bring your side, I'll bring mine, and we see who comes out the best. The New American Commentary says the violence of the carnage of this bloodbath, which appears to be a reference to the Battle of Armageddon, is such that blood like juice overflowing a wine press is spattered everywhere, even as high as horses' bridles. This picture, of course, is wholly conceivable and is in keeping of those who interpret this last conflict to be the bloodiest of history and covering a wide-ranging territory. Megiddo is about 50 miles north of Jerusalem and seems to be the center of the conflict. But while the battle takes its name from that central valley, for the expanse of it to be far beyond would be no surprise. Don't think of this like a swimming pool of it as high as a horse's bridle. Think of it being like a forensic uh, uh, scene when you go in when there's been a fight and there's been blood spatter. That you can tell the impact by how high it goes. Have you ever seen a horse? Yes, y'all have. This is Staples. Those bridles are up there, aren't they? Y'all, that's... I'm sorry. I understand that's pretty graphic. But... The violence is commensurate with the thousands of years of patience that God has had. Just like there's a time for the wheat to go into the barn, there's a time for the grapes to be trampled. God is not going to allow human rebellion to persist forever. He is patient, He is merciful, and He is kind, but if His patience is infinite, it's not patience, it's injustice. He cannot allow evil to go on forever. Now, where did it say that the blood is going to be spattered? Outside the city, right? When Christians here outside the city, we should think something. We should think Hebrews 13, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That, ladies, gentlemen, blood was already shed for you outside the city. It was shed for you outside the city at a place called Calvary. That God took His Son out there and shed His blood for you. So that in Revelation 14, your blood would not be shed outside the city as high as a horse's bridle. That there. Is think of it like this. This 
I'm going off script. Bear with me. If you go back and you read the, the account of the very first Passover, back in Exodus, God tells Moses the last plague. He says, Moses, I have very specific instructions for you. According to the number of households, so one per house, the Hebrews are to take a lamb, spotless, and you're to slay him at twilight. And his blood is to be put on the lintel and the doorpost. The family is to eat that lamb. None of it is to remain until morning. And tonight I'm going to send the destroying angel throughout Egypt. And he is going to kill the firstborn of every house that there is not blood on the doorposts. And then the account goes on. And the very last thing that Exodus says about that plague is there was not a house in which there was not one dead. And I always used to read that as just applying to the Egyptians. But it's not right. That applies to everyone. Even in the Hebrews' houses, there was one dead. Who was it? The lamb. That blood was shed that night. In every house. Christians, the same thing still applies. That the New Testament refers to Jesus as our Passover. He is our lamb, the one who was slain for us, whose blood is on us so that when God sees the blood, he does not destroy. But there will not be a house in which there is not one dead. Somebody's blood is going to be shed. Is it going to be yours or is it the lamb's? Because we've already seen Jesus' blood shed. But in Revelation 14, that's the death of the firstborn. This is the death of everyone who's not covered by the blood. In Revelation 14, if you're not covered by the blood, you cover it in blood. It's a very stark difference. Are you trying to scare me, Pastor? Yes. Because God is... Genesis 15, 15 through 16. Now as for you, this is God talking to Abraham. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Talking about his descendants coming out of Egypt and coming into the promised land. Abraham, God, if you're going to bring me into this land, if you're going to give it to me, why don't you give it to me now? Well, because Abraham, there are people already living there. And if I take you in now, my patience has not run its course. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They've still got rebellion to live out. They've still got opportunity to repent. They've still got a chance to turn their back on their sin and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't offend God like this. But God says in 400 years, they'll have done enough. Romans 2, 4 through 6. But God's patient, God's merciful, God's kind. He's not going to do that to me. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know why God hasn't judged you yet if you haven't come to Christ? It's because He's being patient with you. 
He loves you and he wants to give you an opportunity to repent and come to him and know his mercy and goodness and love. Because if you don't, eventually the day will come when that opportunity is not there anymore. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. I want you to be wheat. I don't want you to be grapes. I want you safely in the barn, not trampled in the vat. There is a very clear description in Revelation 14, 14 through 20, that eventually God's patience is going to run out. Take the opportunity now to go to Jesus outside the city. Go out to Him, bearing His reproach. Go out to Him saying, Jesus, I much prefer coming to You who was slain for me than to be slain by You.